there, there's something about Christmas that over the last several years, and I think that you, you probably can understand, but if you can't, just bear with me for a second, that I've become real cynical about and real just sort of almost angry and just kind of bleh. I'm almost like Scrooge, you know, and except I enjoy, I enjoy, you know, giving the presents and all that stuff. You know, it's not, it's not so much, it's just, for some reason, the whole thing to me has, it's difficult for me to sort through what all the stuff that we've created and just kind of added layers to it and all that kind of stuff and really, really what we ought to be thinking about. And I'll, I'll be honest with you, sometimes I have trouble really being excited about what we ought to be thinking about because of all the other junk. Does that make sense? You guys tracking with me at all here? I, you know, maybe because it drives me nuts to see that at Walmart before Halloween, all the stuff's out. You know, I mean, it, it's crazy. And, you know, and, and then, then Christmas lasts, you know, it's not 12 days of Christmas anymore. It's like 12 months, you know, it's the whole year. And, and everything is geared, you know, for, you know, for you to spend all the money that you can on presents for people that you either really don't know well or don't like very well. And so, and then to act happy when you give them something and get, you know, I just, it just, for whatever reason, I get pretty cynical about the whole thing. And, and maybe, maybe you're like me, or maybe you just think, well, how'd you get to be a pastor thinking that? I don't, you know, whatever, but, but it just sometimes drives me up the wall, I have to be honest with you. And, and the amount of money that is spent, you know, and of course on Friday, I think 3% more than last year was spent, so I guess that's good because, that, you know, that's better, but it's just amazing to me. And, and we're, you know, Nancy and I are the same way. She comes from a family that her parents were divorced, and so we have now... Uh, three sets of grandparents, and, and our kids are still the only grandbabies on both sides. And you can only imagine uh, the, the packing, yes, <laughs> the, the, I think of the packing. The first year that, that Lucy was, was around was in 03, and we drove from Louisville to Nancy's parents, who both live west of Louisville toward Evansville in that area. We took our van, and I had a pickup truck, and we took them both, and we came back full with stuff just for Lucy. It just, I mean, it's amazing. Now we have three, and we can't really feasibly take two vehicles anymore, so we load stuff up. I mean, it's amazing, and, but there's something about all this stuff that just drives me nuts, and I don't mean that in a cliche sort of way. It really does. I mean, I just get, I get really frustrated this time of year because I just think, how much money are we wasting and how many layers do we have to cut through to really get to what this thing is supposed to be all about? And, and then even the stuff that really tries to get us to what it's all about, the, the stories in the Bible, I mean, even some of that can get a little bit dull. And now that may seem just totally blasphemous to some of you, but let's be honest. Over the years, have we not allowed, to a certain extent, the story of the birth of Jesus and the shepherds and the wise men and the manger and all that stuff? It's just, yeah, okay, that, that's, yeah, that's what happened. And we see all the nativity scenes that will be set up, and, and it's almost as if what we think about is Jesus, the baby, laying there in the manger, and with the shepherds and the wise men and the animals and, and his parents and all this stuff in the stable and all, there, there it is, just captured in time forever. And you just drive around. Everybody's, you know, it, it's, every neighborhood's got at least one. There it is, captured forever. But to me, there's, there's got to be something that gets us a little bit beyond all of that. There's got to be something that gets us beyond 
just the, the cynicism that we might feel about this time of year and the money that's spent and all that stuff. And then also beyond just the familiarity that can become dull with the story of the birth of Jesus. And so as we begin a new series today, and we'll look at this through the entire month of December, both on Sunday evening and on Sunday night, or Sunday morning rather, and Sunday evening, I want us to get a little bit beyond just what we see of that captured in time moment, that picture of the manger, get a little bit beyond the manger, and look at some stuff that you never knew you needed to know about the birth of Jesus and why it really matters. Because there's more to it than you really see at first glance. Because if you have even heard the story or maybe read the story in Luke chapter 2, you'll see all of the stuff about the birth of Jesus. And yet there's really more to it. It's fascinating when you begin to pick it apart. And so this whole series is meant to do that. Each Sunday morning we're going to look at a different uh, sort of element in the story. Today we'll look at the story or the, the record of the, the family of Jesus. And we'll, we'll also look over the next few Sunday mornings at some of the prophecies that were fulfilled in Jesus. We'll look at the shepherds and why in the world out in the field did the angels show up to five or six shepherds. doesn't make any sense. Why would they do that? And so we're going to look at that. And, and on Sunday evenings, we'll start tonight by looking at the life of Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus. And we'll look each week, uh, at each Sunday evening, at a different character in the story and why they matter and why they were there. Why did God choose to include them in the story. And so today as we look at the family history of Jesus, there's no doubt that if you think about your family as I can think about mine, that I, I have some interesting things in my family history, and I don't have to trace it back very far. I, I'm not related as far as I know to any American president or any real famous person or anything like that. You may be. In fact, I know we have several famous people in here, and obviously your family is related to you, so they can take claim in that. But... but on my dad's side, my, my dad's mother, my grandmother, can quickly, her family can quickly be traced back to the Cherokee Indians. We have Indian blood not too far removed. And on my mother's side, her grandparents, her maternal grandparents were both deaf. And so my, my maternal grandmother is a deaf interpreter. And I've always found both sides of that. The fact that I've got some Indian blood and the fact that, that my mom's side of the family has experienced uh, deafness, that there's, it's just kind of interesting. And and certainly your family says a lot about you, good, bad, or otherwise. You've been associated with your family, and sometimes you've wanted to, and sometimes you haven't. Maybe those crazy uncles that you have, I have two, uh, that, that maybe, maybe you, you know, you just, everybody's got a crazy uncle, you know, at least one. And maybe you are the crazy uncle, I don't know. But uh, we've got a few in here, you know, don't elbow anybody. I know, we, you know, the great thing about this is we've got... Well, you know, to a certain extent, we've got a lot of families that are kind of, they come together, and I see you pointing at each other. I, I like that. So, um, so anyway, but your family, your family shapes so much of who you are. I mean, even, even where you live, your family has shaped where you live today. Uh, be it because your, your grandparents or your parents moved around, and they just happened to be here, and this is where you grew up, or because your family maybe has been here in West Kentucky in the Murray-Calloway area for years. And this is just where you live because this is where your family has always been. Your family also shapes, obviously can shape your occupation. My grandfather and his three sons, my dad included, all at one point or another worked for Louisville Gas and Electric Company. They all, they all did. Well, Papa got on there and he was able to get all three of his sons on there. It, because of who he was, it shaped what they did for a living. And also your family can shape the amount of wealth that you have or don't have. Sometimes we're just born into money or not so much money. And we, you know, that's part of what it is. And 
And around here, it's very obvious with the farmland that your family can shape the land that you live on and own and, and what's passed down through your family. And, and your family also shapes what you like and don't like. You know, I, when I was growing up, and I tell people this all the time, I knew two things. I knew, I knew baseball and I knew going to church. That was it. I, I, I don't know how to work on cars. I don't know how to build anything. And some of you are thinking, you know, I just don't. You know, I just, but, I, but I knew baseball and I knew going to church because that's what my family did. My dad taught me how to play baseball, and, and then we went to church, and that was it. And, and it paid off because I got the scholarship to play baseball, and you know, now I'm a pastor. I guess it worked out. So, but, it, but my family shaped what I liked and what I didn't like, what I was good at and what I wasn't. Somebody the other day, it was funny, somebody asked me, what are you going to do if Hank, my son, who's three, what are you going to do if he doesn't want to be a baseball player? And there's only one answer. He has no choice. I mean, he, <laughs> he, you know, he... What do you mean, what am I going to do? He's going to, that's what we do. You know, we just, we play baseball. He's a little guy, he's going to play baseball, you know. So, I, you know, I, I don't know what I would do. I, you know, if, if he wanted to do something else that wasn't baseball. I don't know. You know, that's all I know how to do. But, but you think about your family, and, and obviously whether your family is one that you're very proud of or one that you just, you know, don't want to, want to be around your family when it comes right down to it, it's important to you in lots of different ways because it shaped who you are. And family and ancestors were very important to the, to the Jewish people in the time of Jesus. In fact, their family line, their, their relationships and their family helped to establish legitimacy in almost every aspect of life, economic, political, uh, domestic, every area of life. And tribal identification, if you know the history of the Jewish people, they, they came from 12 tribes, the 12 sons of, of Jacob, of Israel, and those tribal identifications and the line of descent, they were all important. That was, that was their identity. And so it's no accident that at the beginning of the New Testament that God found it important enough and wanted to, to, to convey a message important enough that He inspired Matthew uh, under the power of the Holy Spirit to include at the very outset of the New Testament, the very first 17 verses of the New Testament, the, li- the list of the family history of Jesus. no accident that it's there. And so as we look at it today, I want us to consider that, that this is no particular accident in Scripture, that's something to be looked over and just, well, whatever. So if you got your Bible and you have it handy, turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament, and we're going to start in the first chapter, the first verse. So once you get there, hold your place for just a second. I want to kind of catch us up to speed on where we are in the story. Before the New Testament was written, there were about 400 years of what we might call the dark ages of Israel. There was no revelation from God. There was no record of anything that God had done from the close of the Old Testament to the opening of the New Testament, about 400 years. And so through that time, and you can only imagine what it would be like if, if you felt like God didn't do anything. I mean, it just wasn't, He wasn't around. He just kind of disappeared off the scene, so to speak. That's probably what the Israelites had experienced. For 400 years, there was nothing that we know of that was important enough that God was doing in and among the Israelite people that somebody was inspired to write it down. There's really not a whole lot that's going on there. And so so all along the way, though, for, for hundreds of years, there had been prophecies about this Messiah, this king that would one day come to Israel and reestablish them as a world power and would give them freedom from all their enemies. And at the time that we pick up the New Testament, they're under the Roman Empire. 
And life for them was not great. They were taxed beyond what most people would have been comfortable being taxed. They didn't have the freedoms that they wanted. They were not their own nation, although they were, they were allowed some freedom. They were under Roman control. And so it's in this setting that we pick up the, the New Testament story. And understand this, that for hundreds of years, the Israelites had hoped and had waited for those prophecies to come true. Because it had been prophesied way back in the Old Testament that through the family of King David, one day the Messiah would be born and he would then reestablish Israel. And so they waited and waited and waited. And when the kingdom was divided between Israel and Judah, they waited and waited for one of those kings to be the right one and none of them were. And so as we pick up the New Testament, they're still waiting. And there's still lots and lots of anticipation and theories about what this Messiah would be. It's kind of like I was watching something on the assassination of John F. Kennedy and all the conspiracy theories and how many books had been written. The Jewish people were real similar in their theories about this Messiah that was going to come. There were lots of different ideas and lots of different opinions. And so Matthew, as he picks it up, look at verse 1. The historical record of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, if you're anything like me, from this point on, you skip to about verse 18. You laugh because you do it, don't you? I know. Because, because either one of two things. Either you don't know about any of these people and they really don't matter to you, or you can't pronounce their names. And so, you know how it is when you start reading something in the Bible and you can't pronounce their names. As you're reading by yourself, you just skip over it. Or as you're reading in front of other people... You always apologize for, you know, no, nobody knows how to pronounce it. It's kind of funny. I just, you know, so if you're like me, you've probably never read this list. Now, here's what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to read this list to you. Why? Because I can't pronounce all the names, okay? So I'm not going to do that. So you were hoping that you'd get all the right pronunciations. You know, I, I can't do that, all right? But, but, but he lists out in, in the first 17 verses the historical record of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So if you look at it, look at verse 2. Abraham fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered Jacob. Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. So there's the beginning of the nation of Israel. The Judah was one of the twelve tribes of Israel. And so it goes on, and look in verse 6. And Jesse fathered King David. Now King David, of course, was probably the most well-known and popular king in the history of Israel. And so there he is, verse 6. Then you have, maybe your Bible gives you a heading, mine does. It says, from David to the Babylonian exile verses 7 through 11. And then from the exile, starting in verse 12, then after the exile to Babylon, and then leading to verse 16, pick it up there. And Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. So Matthew, throughout these first few verses, and then subsequently throughout his entire gospel, his main point, the point he wants us to get today, the point the Holy Spirit is making as he wrote those words through Matthew is very simply this. This is the main point of the entire passage today in Matthew's Gospel. That, that The point he's making, the, what the record of Jesus proves is that he is who he says he is. He is who he says he is. Now, the, the, the great thing about this, and I pause for just a second to mention this because I think it's important. We put that in present tense because the great news about Jesus Christ is that He is still alive. We serve a God who is not dead. We serve a God who is alive and well, who is working, who is still active, who still cares about every single detail of your life, whether you believe He does or not. He is alive. 
We don't serve a God who was who He says He was. We serve a God who is who He says He is. And that has huge implications for your life because if you think that Jesus is alive, it changes everything. It changes your hope. It changes where you put your future in. It changes the whole game. So He is who He says He is. Look at verse 16. Who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Three things I want you to get about who Jesus is when He says who He is. First is He is the Messiah. And Matthew is making this point. The Messiah that they had hoped for, as I talked about earlier, was this king who would come down and, and destroy all their physical enemies, and, and he, he would take over. And so in order for Jesus to be perceived as a legitimate king, he would have to come through the family line of King David, because that's what the prophecy had said, that the Messiah would come from the line of King David. And so Matthew here, as we just looked at, David's name is mentioned, and then you get to the end of the, the line, and Jesus is there. He came, obviously, through the royal line. And so Luke, in chapter 3 of Luke, we won't turn there, but he gives a sort of a parallel list of ancestors. And what he does is he traces the line not through Joseph and the royal line, but he traces it through Mary and the racial line. And so as if being in the royal line wasn't enough, God gives us another genealogy of Jesus, and, and take those together, and Jesus was then the legal heir to the throne and descendant of David, and the racial descendant of David, and as a result, he's perfectly qualified, and prophecy has been fulfilled that he was indeed the Messiah that they were looking for. And so Matthew's point is to prove that Jesus is who he says he is, that he's qualified to rule and exercise his authority as God's anointed one. The word Messiah means anointed one. And so he was, he's almost shouting it, you can, you can tell when he writes, he, he's, he's who you're looking for. You don't have to look any further. He is who you've been looking for all these years. He's the answer to all of the questions that the Old Testament raised and now has been fulfilled. So he was the Messiah, their king that had been promised. But far beyond just being a king, just being someone who was qualified to rule, Matthew's gospel goes on to, and the other gospels as well, to account for the fact that Jesus was not only the Messiah, but was also the incarnation of God. The incarnation of God. If you've got your bulletin, you can kind of follow along with the back and write some of this stuff down if, you, if you'd like to, but certainly you don't have. I used to be a school teacher, so bear with me. The incarnation of God, that's one of those words, those churchy kind of words that you might hear and, and churches maybe named after it and different things like that, but you're not really sure what that means. Um, basically, basically this, that Matthew wanted to, to convey in, in both this text that we're looking at today and throughout his gospel that Jesus was in fact the Messiah, but he was more than just a human king. He was the incarnation of God. He was not just a priest or a prophet or another king. He was in fact God in human flesh. That he came from heaven. He was preexistent. He came to earth in the form of a man. That's what the incarnation means. It's a fancy word to mean that he was God and he came down here and lived like one of us. He, he walked around in the form of a man, even though he never gave up the fact that he was God. The whole time he was on earth, the Bible is clear, he was, in fact, still God, and yet he chose to come to earth in the form of a man and walk around on earth much like we do. You may say, well, what in the world difference does that make? Well, he would later claim to be able to forgive sin. The Bible records that over and over, Jesus would say to someone, maybe you've heard the stories of someone who could not walk, and he said, your sins are forgiven, get up. And the Pharisees and the religious leaders would immediately be up in arms because they said, only God can forgive sin. Well, Jesus, 
in doing so, claimed to be God. Later in John chapter 14, he claimed that he was the way to get to God. He was the only way that anyone had hope of getting to God. So Jesus himself claimed to be God in human flesh. So it's huge. And, and Matthew records that he was the fa- Joseph was the husband rather of Mary who gave birth to Jesus. If you know about Mary, of course, we know about the miraculous nature of the virgin birth. Had Jesus been born through some other way, then he would have been tainted by sin, but he was not born like we are born. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit in a miraculous way that kept him sinless through his entire life. And so, because he was God in human flesh, he came to bridge the gap between God and between us. And although he was human, he experienced human emotion and constraints, he was perfect. And he was unique. And he was the ideal human. And so as a human coming down from heaven, he brought God to us. And as God, he's able to take us to him. And and it's interesting to note, what other God has ever done that? There's no other God that anyone serves, that anyone believes in, who's ever done what Jesus did. There's no other God who claimed to come out of heaven to live a sinless life and to bridge that gap for His people. Nobody's ever done that. And so He is the Messiah. He is God in human flesh. And because He was that sinless one, He was then the atonement for our sin. That word atonement means payment. He was the payment for our sin. And you might say, well, you know, I feel like that, and this is typical, I feel like I'm a pretty good person. We have a lot of really good people in our church. We have a lot of really good people in our community. Maybe you've, maybe you've, you've thought, well, I'm, you know, I'm all right. I, you know, I, golly, I, you know, you talk about sin. I mean, you know, church growth experts would tell you, don't start talking about sin in church because people don't want to hear about their sin. But the great thing is, God loves us enough to talk about it in the Bible, so we ought to talk about it here. And so... If He didn't love us, He'd just leave us in our sin. I thank God that He rescued us out of that. And so we might say, well, you know, I'm just kind of okay. I mean, I, you know, I go to church. It's, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm thankful that you do. And, and, and I do some good things. Well, I haven't, you know, I haven't stolen anything. I mean, I don't, I don't really talk nasty to people. I, you know, I haven't murdered anybody. I mean, you, know, I do, you check things off the list. And, but the, the Bible is very clear that we are not okay on our own. If you, if you do a quick search of the Gospels and stuff, some of the stuff that Paul wrote, you'll find in John chapter 3 that sin is so serious and detrimental that, that we need to be born all over again. We need a brand new life. I mean, we, it's so serious. You, you find in, 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 in later on what, what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2 that we are dead in our sin. That in essence, we're as good as dead and we're not alive because of the sins that we've committed. And Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15 that we need to be created all over again. And the truth is God's standard, as you may know, is perfect holiness. Perfect holiness. And we failed. We failed. Each and every one of us. The way that God set it up was that death, death of someone or something innocent, was the only atonement, the only payment that He would accept. That's it. And obviously because we are not perfect, we can't be that perfect and only atonement. In the Old Testament, there was an innocent animal that the Bible would often record was without stain or blemish. It was perfect. That was the the best that the owner had. And what they would do was they would take that animal, take it before God, give it to the priest. The priest would then sacrifice those animals on behalf of the people. And in so doing, God would transfer the guilt of the sin of those people onto that innocent animal and remove the sin from those people. Death was required 
blood had to be shed and punishment for sin had to be made because that's the only way that God can stay true to Himself and for Himself to remain holy, which He always is. God always punishes sin. Now, if we close the service right there, you would either never come back or you would always just be really discouraged. God always punishes sin. Well, I better look out for the lightning bolts because I know I'm going to sin when I walk out of here. The great news is the, the remainder of the story. That yes, God always punishes sin, but He made a new covenant beginning in the New Testament when He sent Jesus, who lived a sinless life, who was completely innocent of any sin whatsoever. And Paul records in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that he who knew no sin, God made him become sin or take all of our sin on him for us so that we then might become what the Bible says the righteousness, that perfect holiness of God. Jesus himself became that sacrifice for us, that atonement for our sin. But he, he had to be the Messiah. He had to be God in human flesh in order to be that perfect payment for our sin. His sinless, innocent life then qualified Him to pay for our sin, to do what we could not accomplish on our own. The truth is this, whether you've heard this a hundred times or this is the first time, we are completely lost and hopeless without Jesus because we cannot atone, we cannot pay for our own sin. Sin must be dealt with and His death took care of the guilt that was on us. You might say, well, okay, I've heard that. You know, that, that's what churches talk about a lot, that Jesus paid for our sins, He died. I mean, John 3, 16, I know that, that's great. And, and in fact, when, when Matthew was listing out this genealogy, the, the Pharisees were just fine with the fact that Jesus was to be the king. The problem came in when He didn't fit what they wanted. The problem came in when He didn't fit what they had expected, because they always thought of, of His political life. What's He going to do for us? When's He going to rescue us from this situation that we're in that's so difficult? And they wanted a Messiah that would crush those physical enemies. And in fact, what they quickly learned was that their main concern was not His main concern. And He was there to give them a different kind of freedom. And they, they were unaware. This is probably where the Pharisees probably dif- differed the most from what Jesus really was. They didn't believe that He was going to be the atonement for their sin. They didn't believe that He would in fact be God in human flesh. He would pay for their sin. And the problem was they didn't get what they expected. And the truth is, sometimes we're no different. Because Jesus doesn't always fit what we want. You ever, you ever, you ever come across that? You ever read the Scripture and just think, that's not, that's not the view of Jesus that I, that I want. That's not, who, that's not the God that, that I want to think about. That's, or you've been through some tough times and you think, that's not, that's, this isn't what I signed up for. This isn't what I thought I was getting myself into. Because the truth is, we just want Him to be love, to be our friend, to be our buddy, walk through life with us, be our teddy bear, we can squeeze when times are tough, or to be our good luck charm, we can rub on and say, please do this for me, or be involved only when we want Him to be. A lot of times that's the stance we take, or, or be just a part of our life. I'll give you Sunday, Lord. I'll give you Sunday. That's the Lord's day. I'll give you the inner. Or you know what? When times get tough, I'll give you that too. And a lot of times we really don't want our relationship with Jesus to cost us anything. And so when he starts talking about in Luke chapter 9 that if you want to come after me, you want to be my disciple, you're going to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Well, hold on just a second. Because that's not the Jesus that I want. That's not my teddy bear Jesus. 
And that's not my buddy, Jesus. You seen the shirt, Jesus is my homeboy? You ever seen that one? I saw that a few times. He's not my buddy. What's going on? Deny myself. Take up my cross. Identify with him and his suffering. Are you kidding me? We want to enjoy him and also enjoy everything that the world has to offer all at the same time. And when it comes right down to it, we're all tempted to, to not want to stop living for ourselves. And so Jesus sometimes is not exactly what we want. But I thank God that He loves me more than to give me just what I want. Because Jesus may not be in every situation exactly what I thought I wanted. But He fits exactly what I need in every situation. And He is all sufficient. He is my Redeemer who has purchased me back from the life that I chose to live in sin. He is my Savior who's given me eternal life in heaven. And He's the only hope that I have. And that may not be all the things that I thought I wanted when I signed up for life with Jesus, but I guarantee you this, that it's everything that I need. And so He's so much more than what we want. He's exactly what we need. So Matthew's point primarily is to establish that Jesus is who He says He is. And then in including the names that He included, He makes a secondary point that's this. We'll wrap up with this. That His grace extends to all. His grace extends to all. And there's two incredible things about the people that are in this list that we pick up about God's grace. First is this, that no one is exempt from needing it. No one. Every person that He lists there was a sinner. Every single person. Including Mary, the mother of Jesus. There is nothing different about Mary than about any other woman that's in this room right now. In fact, when Mary found out she was going to be the mother of the Savior of the world, she prayed and had a song in Luke chapter 2 that's, that the very opening praised God for her Savior. She knew she needed a Savior just like anybody else. The people in that list, none of them, none of them were exempt from needing God's grace. And we're not exempt today because each of us, each and every one of us, have only hope simply because of the grace of God. The only reason we have any chance in this world whatsoever to experience God is because of His grace. And if He were to remove it tomorrow, we'd be hopeless. That's it. Be over. I thank God that He doesn't. I thank God that, that He doesn't. But if He did, we'd be hopeless. So no one is exempt from needing His grace. Nobody has been good enough to earn love from God. We have all failed at that perfect holy standard. But the second part is this, that no one is beyond receiving it. No one is beyond receiving it. The Jewish people thought that, that God was just for them, but in Matthew's list, you realize he lists at least three women that were Gentiles, non-Jews. He, he, lists, he lists people that one lady was a prostitute. He lists King David, who committed adultery with a married woman and then had her husband killed who was later called a man after God's own heart. You think, you think David did that on his own? It's only because of the grace of God. He was not beyond receiving the grace of God because of his sin. Rahab the prostitute was not beyond the grace of God for her sin. Those Gentiles, those non-Jews, were not beyond the grace of God because they weren't born into the right family. No one is exempt from needing it. No one is beyond receiving it. The great news is this, that the, the grace and forgiveness that God offers is for the purpose of freedom in your life. Freedom. The Israelite people, over and over and over, when they turned their back on God, found themselves enslaved. 
literally, physically enslaved to another country. Sometimes for a few years at a time, sometimes for decades, sometimes for centuries at a time. They found themselves enslaved. And the Bible says that when they turned back to God, He took away their slavery. He gave them freedom. And so the grace and forgiveness of God is not so that you walk through life saying, woe is me, I can't do anything that's fun, I can't do anything that participates in what everybody else is doing. It's far beyond that. It's for the purpose of freedom. Freedom from sin, freedom from a life that leads to destruction, and freedom in each and every moment being confident of your salvation. Freedom to know and enjoy Him forever and to receive the rescue from a life of that sin. And so, what's the proper response to who Jesus is? It's real simple. It's to repent and to believe. To repent and to believe. To repent is simply to turn from the sin that's caused the problem in the first place. To turn away from it. Each and every day. Each and every day. And to submit yourself to the required change in every aspect of life. And then to believe. What do you believe about Jesus? It has serious implications because... If you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that He is the King that God had promised, that He is, in fact, God come in human flesh to bridge the gap between God and us, if you believe that He is the only atonement for our sins, it will change the way you live. Because true conversion, true conversion changes the way you live. It changes it. It changes the way you think. It changes what you believe. It changes your actions. James said that faith, when it's real, is expressed in actions. Does that mean that your actions save you? No, but they're simply a byproduct of you walking with Jesus each and every day. And so what you believe about Jesus has serious implications, not just for eternity, but for the way that you live here. And so some of you have been thinking, well, this is a message for somebody who maybe is not confessed to be a Christian, not a believer in Jesus. But in fact, what you believe about Jesus each and every day will alter how you live. So what do you believe about Him? Do you believe what the Bible says, that He is your only hope? That He is your salvation? That He is the one who has the right to rule in your heart and not you? And does your life back up that belief? Tough questions. Because if I truly believe that Jesus is the only one who has the right to rule, that He's the only salvation, but I live my life otherwise, then I don't truly believe it. So what do we believe? You can rest assured that as you walk out of here today, it will be tested. What you believe about Jesus will be tested each and every day this week. You'll be tempted to take life in your own hands, to live it on your own. You'll be tempted to put your hope and trust in something else, in your money, in your family, whatever it may be. And you'll be tempted to live life on your own. The truth is this, from God's Word, as we look at the family record of Jesus, it speaks volumes that He is who He says He is. He's the one qualified to rule in our hearts. He's God who came in the form of a human to bridge the gap for us. And He is the one who is the only possible payment for our sin. He's our hope. He's our encourager. He's our satisfaction. He's our peace. He's our counselor. And His grace is available today, each and every day. You're not exempt from needing it. You're not okay on your own, but thank God you're not beyond receiving it each and every day. Jesus Himself claimed to come to save sinners, those who are lost, those who are far from God. So my challenge to you and to me today is to live as if Jesus really is who He says He is. 
to live as if He really is alive. To live as if He really is qualified to be King in our hearts. To live live as if He is the only true sacrifice. Not anything we can do to earn God's love. But only in fully relying on Jesus can we experience Him the way He designed us to experience Him. So my prayer for you and for me is that we'll leave today and we'll go and live like what we believe about Jesus is actually true. That we'll be a church that believes that Jesus is alive and we come alive each and every day because of His grace. And we'll be different because of our true belief in Jesus. Let's pray. God, I pray that that who you really are would, would be all that we care about. The fact that you have the right to rule in our hearts, so we would yield to that and experience and enjoy you. God, that even in the midst of difficult circumstances like those Jewish people face, that you came to set us free in a different way, a way that we need, not necessarily that we would choose. We need to be set free from the inside out. God, I pray for those who are who are just kind of caught up in life, feeling like they're in bondage. I pray you set them free. God, thank you that your grace is, is for all. That we're not exempt from needing it. And that the great news is that we're not beyond receiving it. So, Lord, we ask you to rule in our hearts. Thank you for bridging the gap for us to give us a way to get to God. Jesus, we thank you for your yielding to be the atonement for our sins. We place our hope and our trust only in you today. Pray for those who maybe need to make that decision for the first time. Would you give them boldness? Would you give them courage? God, for those of us who simply need to walk away and live out what we say we believe, thank you that your grace extends even to us. Give us the strength to do so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.